welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm glad to be back home. I was gone for the last couple weeks in Oklahoma. Uh, I remember two years ago when Jody and I were new to Christchurch. Now we were about six months new to Anglicanism. But I remember our first Advent. I remember walking into this room and all, all this was up here. And uh, it, it, was, it was supposed to be Christmas but everyone was solemn and uh, we weren't allowed to say Merry Christmas yet because Anglicans, you know, they celebrate that that Christian year uh, where, where we start with Advent. And one of the funny things about the Christian calendar, I think probably one of the best graces of the Christian calendar is that we begin the Christian year not with triumph, with triumph and celebration. We begin the Christmas year with waiting. We enter into the story of the scriptures, the story of Jesus, just before he came for the first time. Uh, We enter into this season of waiting. Now, several years ago, I was flying on a plane. I was I was flying on a plane. We were we were I can't remember if we were coming up. My memory is pretty terrible, actually. I can't remember if we were going up or we were coming down. And I remember looking at down at the city and I'd, I'd probably flown on a plane for you know, 20 or 30 times at this point in my life. I've been on a plane many times, but I looked down at this entire city, right? And I'm, I wasn't a president in Air Force One, you know, flying over a bunch of fire or catastrophe or anything crazy, but I looked down on this city and I, and I was wondering how in the world does all of this hold together? There's, there's like a bunch of people who are like plumbers and bureaucrats and teachers and moms and dads. And I look down, I see all these buildings that are built to code and streets and all of this is holding together. And it was, it was remarkable because I know people, I know myself, I know how broken and selfish we are. And yet this whole civilization, right? This whole country or this city was, was holding together in relative peace. I had a conversation in Oklahoma with a friend who is a VP at a multi-million dollar company. And one of the things that was really interesting about this conversation with him was that he, he was lamenting the fact that one or two people make or break this entire company. This whole thing could fall apart tomorrow. Right. If we if we could fire, if we could just fire this one guy, then we could we could be an astronomical success. Right. I I think an 18 million dollar a year company is probably doing okay. Um, But but just just as with this city or with a country, with this larger entity, here is this big, massive corporation that is held together by just a few people. This is Advent. This is a place that seems to be okay, that is, that is, not fully, is, is not fully set right yet and is waiting for just, just that one last thing, that one last turn that will bring it all together, that will hold it all together, that will bring peace and bring it a little closer to home. 
driving around in Oklahoma, I drove by uh, multi-million dollar church buildings that were largely empty, one of which I used to be a part of, um, where they have just a few people meeting together in these large spaces, these too big to fail ministries. And you can zoom in even a little closer to our own homes and our own lives, our own hearts even. And we're in this place where sometimes we seem to have it together, right? Where, where traffic is going on the right side of the road in our own souls, in our own homes, but it could fall apart in a moment's time. We are in need of redemption. And this is the spirit of Advent. This is where the gospel story comes to us. See, some of us are really good at showing confidence and stability, Again, that multinational corporation is too big to fail, or they have the most beautiful family, or their marriage is so perfect, or that person has it all together. But you pull one brick out of the Jenga tower of a country or a city or a church or a family, an individual human soul, You pull one brick out and the whole thing crumbles to the ground. And this is the precarious human condition, right? This is where Jesus comes to us. The gospel has to come through Advent. It has to come to Advent first. We heard in our readings this morning from the prophet Malachi. Malachi, 400 years, over 400 years before Jesus He was the one who was preparing the way in the wilderness of these returned exiles coming back to Jerusalem. They're coming back to Jerusalem. He was preparing the way and still looking forward to someone who would prepare the way for the Lord. This is the Advent reality. John the Baptist, cousin of Jesus. Jesus is alive. He's he's there, but his his public ministry hasn't started yet. And Jesus... And John the Baptist is famously, right, this this weird wilderness guy who is preparing the way of the Lord. He has this he has this uh, strange following, and yet nobody really respects him. He's just a wild and crazy um, prophet, like like uh, like the prophets that came before. So John he enters into the story. Okay, he enters into the story. Jesus is already. He is already born. He's already come, but he's still the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. This is Advent. And then if you transition to our reading this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what in the world does 1 Corinthians 4 have to do with this Malachi reading? What does it have to do with John the Baptist? What does it have to do with repentance and this season of waiting in Advent? Jesus has already come, right? He's already come. He's already fulfilled his ministry. He has already died and rose again. He's already sent his spirit, right? 20 years after Jesus's resurrection from the grave, 20 years after his resurrection from the grave, Paul has this church, this church that he's just planted, okay? And they, they are in a, a season of tumult, 
Just like, just like Malachi is returned to exiles, just like the people of God before Jesus' public ministry with John, the church in Corinth, gifted with the Spirit after the resurrection of Jesus, is still in this Advent season. They're still in this season of unrest. And it's for a whole lot of reasons, but by God's grace, by God's grace, he sent the prophets of old. He sent John preparing the way of Jesus. He, spent, he sent Jesus, and then he sends Paul to these people. He continues to send prophets and pastors to a people who are in need of rescue. This is the Corinthian Advent reality, and this is our reality. So that's, that's sort of like the simple reason why 1 Corinthians 4 is in here. Paul, Paul is at the end of his introduction to 1 Corinthians. He is defending his authority as an apostle. Why do we still need apostles if Jesus has already died and rose again and sent his spirit, right? Why, why do we need leaders anymore? Why do we need people who will who will go out into the wilderness, who will, be, who will be despised of men and proclaim the word of God because we are still, we're still waiting, right? This is, the, this is the dual reality of the Advent season that we live in. We look back at the first Advent of Jesus and we look forward to his coming again. Not all things have been set right yet. They've begun to be set right. And so this is Paul's, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, this is Paul's defense of himself, his defense of himself. And so this, this might seem like it might only apply to pastors and preachers and teachers. And I, and I hear this text. Uh, there's so many verses in this, in this whole uh, chapter that kind of blow me away. But this is a reality that breaks into all of our lives all of our lives that he defends. And it's this, it, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to break it up into three sections. I think there are three movements in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, and the first movement, the first point that Paul brings out in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is that Jesus is judge. Jesus is judge. If you remember from our Malachi reading, the one who was preparing the way of the Lord was preparing Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts. In verse five of Malachi chapter three, then I will draw near for judgment. Who is I? It's the Lord of hosts. He is the one who's speaking. So Malachi is, is crying out for Yahweh to come. The one who is preparing the way of the Lord is preparing the way for Yahweh God to enter into this story. And if you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and in verse 4, at the end of this verse, Paul appeals to the Lord Jesus. It is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, here's the next question. How is Yahweh, how is Jesus coming as judge gospel? How is that good news? How is it good news? The, the Advent reality, this, this period of unrest that we live in, is really a reality full of judgment. We can't, we can't escape judgment. It doesn't matter what, what epoch 
of salvation history you're reading in your Bible. It doesn't matter what season of life. We are all swirling around in a season and a time of judgment. We can't escape it. And so Jesus as judge is good news because every other form of judgment is a trap. Look with me at the first verses here in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. And actually picking up in verse 21, before chapter 4, there's a word that helps us gain, gain context for what's going on here. And this word is actually all throughout the first four chapters and throughout the rest of the letter of Corinthians. So let no one boast in men. In chapter 4 and verse 7, he repeats this same word. So this first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is is related to this idea of boasting. In in chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul uses another word for boasting. It's, It's translated puffed up. And this word happens several times in 1 Corinthians and once in Colossians. And it's nowhere else in the Bible. Okay, so the kind of pride, the kind of boasting Paul is addressing here in this first part when he's talking about Jesus as our judge, as Yahweh coming as judge. It is the kind of boasting that puffs us up against everyone else around us. This is the kind of boasting uh, where we think uh, we got it all together and we don't need anyone else. C.S. Lewis says pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. This is the Corinthian situation. You have a bunch of people who are proud and boasting in themselves, and it's causing a lot of division in this church. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, Jesus is our judge. Look with me at verse 3 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 3, but with me, it is a very small thing, that I should be judged by you. So stop there for a second. That, that I should be judged by you. Paul himself, he does not care what the people in this congregation, in the church, say about him, right? He doesn't want to be judged by them or, he continues, by any human court. Let's expand the picture a little bit. By, by any society, by any group of people By the world, I'm not judged by any of those people. Now, here's the thing. When we talk, when I say, when I read that part of that verse, as as 21st century Americans, you can get that anywhere. You can get that anywhere. If you go to a pastor or to a counselor, uh, if you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, they're going to you're going to come in there with all your problems, right? You're going to come in and list it all out before them and they're going to say you don't need you don't need to hear that judgment from those church people, right? You don't have to hear that judgment from the society, from Trump and all those conservatives or all those li- you don't have to care about anyone else. It only it only matters what you say about yourself, right? The 21st century American appeal is that if you have a problem with 
with other judgment, with other people's opinion of you, the answer is self-esteem. The answer is to look inside yourself and judge yourself and be okay with yourself. Continuing in verse 3, Paul says, In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So, Paul is pushing against our inclinations, right? To be, to be needed to be built up with self-esteem. But the answer to judgment from others, even Paul says, even if you can look within your own soul and you're feeling really good about yourself, right? That fanciful reality of me actually preaching a sermon that I liked myself and other people liked, right? That that once or twice a year when I walk out of the pulpit and go, man, I just nailed it, right? <laughs> Even in that place, if I don't see anything wrong in myself, if my, if my self-judgment of myself is really high, which is, which is where most of these people in Corinth was, right? They're, they were boasting themselves. They were, they were dividing into factions with strong leaders over and over again because their pride, even in this place of highest personal self-esteem, in the place of perfect sermons and growing ministry, in the place of children who are on fire for Jesus, in the place of business success or financial stability or personal or social or physical or spiritual health. Now, remember, Paul is a really godly dude. Even in this place, and especially in this place, self-judgment is a trap. It's self-delusion. You cannot escape Judgment. The only place of freedom is Jesus the Lord as judge. This is what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter what I say about myself. It doesn't matter what you say to me. It is the Lord who judges me. So here's the question again. Why is Jesus coming as judge? Good news. All right, let's continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The second point. Jesus gives you everything. So we see Jesus is judge and Jesus gives you everything. Look with me at verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Now, some interpreters of 1 Corinthians think that this is hyperbolic. Paul is, is sort of, he's making a strong hyperbolic statement. Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think he's making any hyperbolic statement here. This is the gospel. Read it again. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, you are in Christ. You are sanctified with Christ. You are united to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in fellowship with the Father. Right before this text in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 23, you are Christ's. You are already his possession and Christ is God's. So in Christ, you have everything. 
In Christ, you have the inheritance of God to reign and rule on this earth. You don't need, you don't need me, Paul says. Without us, you have become kings. So in the gospel, you are judged at the beginning. You are judged at the beginning. You are already beloved of God from the beginning. It's not based upon works so that not one of us can boast. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you are judged by someone else, when you stand accused by the world and the devil, when you stand accused by yourself, you can cry aloud, you're right. You're right. But my life is now hidden with Christ in God. I have already been judged in Christ. I have already died with him and I have been raised to life in, with him and I'm walking in newness of life. But as Father Keith would say, are we saved simply from death, from the grave, or are we saved to something? Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10. We, Paul says of the apostles, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor and disrepute and so on and so forth, all the way down, all the way down to refuse, which is a bad word. That's a very... That's a very kind translation, right? All the way down, these are Paul's qualifications. Here, here's the remarkable thing for me. When I read Paul right here, Paul in the first part of this letter, he says, I thank God that I only baptized two dudes here in Corinth. Oh yeah, and one family, right? I thank God that I had very little ministry success and that nobody respects me in your community I make myself nothing in your presence so that you guys can be lifted up. That's the kind of self-judgment that I don't have. This is, this is not high self-esteem, right? This is low self-esteem, but because Jesus is his judge, because Jesus is his righteousness, Paul can list all of this, all of this, unsuccess and he can be secure high self-esteem or low self-esteem they're both a trap low self-esteem that is that is a that is a far greater a far more pernicious judge so the answer to high self-esteem is not to feel bad about yourself it's to look to jesus Jesus is the judge. You have everything in him. You don't need him. You don't need Paul. You don't need me. You could come with confidence before the throne of grace. But he doesn't end there. If, that's, if Jesus giving us everything is sort of the theological foundation, is that, if that's the theological foundation for why Jesus as judge 
is good news for our souls, then this last part of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is the practical foundation for helping us to believe that Jesus is our judge is good news. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14. And we see lastly that Jesus gives you fathers. Jesus gives you fathers. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Though you have countless guides, you do not have many fathers. One of the remarkable things um, when you move from the old covenant to the new covenant is, is the renewed emphasis upon God as our father and the implications of that, that we are united to his household. Right? The, the word that's used most in the New Testament of the church is not ecclesia, right? It's household. It's oikos. It's, it's this family. It's, a, it's an affectionate turn, right? You have Malachi, who's, who's a prophet. You have John, who's a, a wily prophet. And then you have Jesus, who's a son to his father in heaven. And now Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't give us another teacher or another guide. He gives us an affectionate father. Paul writes to these people, he writes to these people as his beloved children. Jesus gives us fathers. I just want to end quickly um, with a general principle, a general principle and then a specific principle. The general principle of family as a practical help for living our lives with the reality that Jesus is our judge and we are not our own self-judge or anyone else in this room is not our judge or society is not our judge. The family in general is, is the place where we, where we lose our self-centered, self-identity, not, be, not because we become nameless, not because we become one more cog in a machine or one more puzzle in a massive or one more piece in a massive puzzle. OK, we don't lose our sense of, of self by becoming all the same and nameless in a family. You become nameless because you have a title now and your title is related to those people around you. My kids come up to me and they don't say, "Hey Chris." Well, Ellie does occasionally. She thinks that's fun, right? "Hey Chris." No, she says, "Daddy." She calls me "Daddy." In relation to Jody, I lose myself and I become husband. Right? In relation to my my children, they they become they become nameless but they become nameless in a way that brings life, that, that makes our identity wrapped up in other esteem, right? In other esteem and looking towards others and not looking at myself all the time. So here's a general principle uh, of family that is, is hinted at here in this text that shows us 
um, this move in salvation history that brings life to us. But here's, here's a warning, and I'm, and I'm going to call this my babysitting warning. And this is from my own life. Um, you, you guys over here don't know, okay? You don't know that my parents moved to Winston-Salem three months ago, and you don't know that the seven years before that, we didn't have any free babysitting, right? And so Jody and I are actually go on dates now, and we don't feel bad for having to spend twice as much money on the dates. It's really great. Um, but here, here's the warning in the babysitting analogy. Jody and I have had several people in our church over the years babysit for us for free. And every time, very few times, we feel real bad about it because we're asking something of someone who's not our family. So if I actually believed that you guys were my family, I wouldn't feel that. I would ask that of you. I wouldn't just receive it from you. I would ask it of you. That's what family does. We call each other brother and sister, right? And father in the church. And they're, they can become throwaway words because we don't actually treat each other as family, okay? So hear the warning. Uh, Jesus as our, Jesus gives us fathers. He gives us family. But it's family, not for people with biological children alone, right? It's for everyone to be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers in the church. And lastly, I want to end with a specific. Jesus gives us fathers. We still need fathers. Father Ben, or Father Tom, if you're from Good Shepherd, he makes himself weak so that we can be strong. He is slandered so that we can be esteemed. He has forfeited his earthly mansion to help build your heavenly mansion. So we, we need to come to our fathers not as Slaves to a master, but as children to our daddy. We need to submit to our fathers in the faith, those who go before us, who lay down their lives for us, who are counted as refuse for us. We need to go to them and submit to them and find life. And this is one of the, one of the most central ways in which we can live as if Jesus is the judge of our lives. We are not our own judges the only place to be free from judgment is when Jesus is our judge. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So we must die with him and rise with him, live for him and pour ourselves out for others in our family and outside of our families and look forward in this season of Advent for him to come again and to judge this judgmental world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 